Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Chris, I bet our listeners and watchers get tired of hearing us tell them, read your Bible. No. (laughs) (laughs) And we know we say it a lot, but you know that there's questions that we've never actually answered. Is there one translation of the Bible that's better than others? Why are there so many translations of the Bible? And are all translations of the Bible created equally? You're right. We don't ever address any of those questions, but in this episode, we will. You can get overwhelmed when you see all the different Bible translations that are out there. Just in English alone, there are over 450 translations that have been written. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? Are they all pretty much the same? Is it better to only read one translation or switch up between several? Rose, we have a lot of questions to answer today. So, you know, since we are creatures of habit, like we do with other many, many issues, let's start at the beginning. Right. And for this subject, the beginning is not Genesis. It's the whole Old Testament. Many, many years before the New Testament was even put together, the books of the Old Testament were accepted as divine revelation, meaning they were canonical. The Old Testament was written on scrolls roughly by 28 to 30 authors, and that's because there's some authorship of books and some of the Psalms that's just not known. 22 of the Old Testament books, there's 39 of them, were mentioned by name by Flavius Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian. In fact, he's the most credible and quoted Jewish historian in history. If you want to get some great historical narrative on the Bible, Josephus is a great resource. He wasn't a Christian, but he gives a lot of great historical background to things that were happening during biblical events. Right. The Old Testament books were the foundation of Judaism. They were often read from in the synagogues. They were all written in Hebrew, except for some of Daniel and Ezra, which were written in Aramaic, a language that was closely related to Hebrew. How do we know that all of these books are authentic? Well, throughout scripture, the entire Old Testament is sometimes referred to as the law, sometimes the law and the prophets, and sometimes the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's just semantics. It's kind of like how the northern nation nation of Israel was sometimes also referred to by its biggest tribe, Ephraim, or its capital, Samaria. All three meant the entire northern nation. Right. The Old Testament gets about the best endorsement for validity something can possibly get, Jesus. Jesus himself in several places says that what's contained in the scrolls of the Old Testament is authentic and true. One place is Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, Jesus, these are my words and I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he says something similar again in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The only written scriptures around when Jesus walked the earth was the Old Testament. (laughs) Jesus is saying in those verses that the Old Testament is authentic and true. That's some pretty solid evidence (laughs) that they are. Plus, As most of us know, Jesus often quoted from many of the books of the Old Testament. So besides some early church debate about the book of Esther, which some had issue with because it never mentions God by name, the Old Testament had very little pushback. But 
How about the New Testament? Things get a little hairier here, but we can still have complete confidence that all 27 books of the New Testament are authentic. For one thing, the writers of the New Testament quote each other. Paul often quotes the Gospels and Peter quotes Paul's epistles, just to name a couple of examples. But as we'll see, there's a lot more reason to be confident that the books are canonical, meaning divinely inspired and genuine. Right. In 140 AD, the first list of canonical books of the New Testament was formulated. Now, ironically, it was by a man who was later declared a heretic, but that's another story. By the end of the second century, all but seven books, Hebrews, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, Jude, James, and Revelation, were recognized as being apostolic, and we'll define that in a minute. By the end of the fourth century, all 27 books in our present canon were recognized by all the churches in the West, and by the year 500, they were recognized by churches worldwide. There was a council, several in fact, who met to decide which books were canonical and which weren't. The criteria used were first, the author must have either been an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, that's apostolic. Second, the document could not contradict other inspired writings with respect to doctrinal teaching. Remember the rule, scripture must interpret scripture. And third, it must have been cited by early Christian writers and be accepted by a majority of the early churches. This helps us have confidence that the New Testament books are genuine. But of course, the main reason we know that the 66 books in the Bible are accurate and genuine is because the Holy Spirit not only divinely inspired the writers of Scripture, but he testifies to the truth of them, to the councils, and he does that to all believers. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. And John 16 verses 12 to 15 says, there is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. The Holy Spirit testifies to believers that the Bible is true and right. Absolutely. And before we go any further, let's pause and talk about the books that didn't make it into the canon. And why does the Catholic Bible have books in it that the Protestant Bible doesn't? I'll start with the books that didn't make it. Most of us probably remember the Da Vinci Code, which was loosely based on the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. It had all these crazy heretical ideas that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they even had a child together. People jumped on this. I remember that book sold out like crazy and the yep. movie was a bestseller. And many continue today to jump on the bandwagon of Gnostic books. If you want to know for sure that the Gnostic books are junk, Let's just look at the dictionary definition of Gnosticism. It is a prominent heretical movement of the second century Christian church, partly of pre-Christian origin. Gnostic doctrine taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, the demurrage, and that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme divine being. Esoteric knowledge, Gnosis, of whom enabled the redemption of the human spirit. 
Yeah, and if that's confusing, more simply put, Gnostics were a heretical anti-Christian group who thought at most that God was a remote, uninvolved divinity, and at worst, that Jesus was not fully God. So that pretty much destroys any credibility of the Gnostic books. They obviously have an agenda. Hence, when they said that Jesus was married with a child, they wanted him to appear just like any other man. Right. So what about the extra books in the Catholic Bible? Well, the books found in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible are from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a group of biblically related writings that all occurred between the Old Testament and New Testament, or the 400 years when nobody heard from God. Although they are a good resource for historical context, they've been deemed not genuine because they did not pass the canonical requirements that we named earlier. Right. Okay, so I know we flew through that, but we can all rest assured that the 66 books we have in our Bible are all divine revelation that God intended us to have. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But then it starts to get trickier because technically this 2 Timothy verse applies to the original scrolls. If we're reading anything other than the original Hebrew Aramaic scrolls of the Old Testament or the original Greek writings of the New Testament, and I'm assuming we all are, <laughs> then we're reading a translation of scripture. Yes. So let's get this translation discussion started by saying that God is infallible, but translators are not. And unless we are fluent in Hebrew and Greek and can read the original texts, uh, we are at the mercy of translators. The first translation of the Bible was the Vulgate, written by St. Jerome in the fourth century, and it was in Latin. It was the official version of the Bible for the church up until the 16th century. But the reformers started noticing some problems with it, particularly Martin Luther. Yeah, he found a huge mistranslation that rocked his world and changed everything for him. And us. And us. That's right. The Vulgate translated the original Greek word for repent as do penance. That's why the church taught that you had to do penance to pay for your sins. And one way you could do penance was to purchase what was called indulgences that the church sold to make money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. An indulgence was grace. If you paid the church for the indulgence, you were given a paper that said you were given a portion of grace from the grace treasury. So you were forgiven for your sins. When Martin Luther realized that the word was actually repent, he realized that we only needed to go to God seeking forgiveness and turn from our sin and we'd be given grace. It was totally free and totally dependent on the sovereignty and grace of God. It had nothing to do with the church. You could actually go buy without money, right? That's right. Yeah, this mistranslation was huge. It is the one that could actually affect someone's yes. salvation. But the church wasn't that concerned because when the reformers split off and formed the Protestant church, that original church became the Roman Catholic church, and they still recognized the Vulgate as their main version of the Bible. And while not as major as this one, there are still problems in translations. Translators don't always agree. As we said, God is infallible. Translators aren't. So here's a couple of examples. First Samuel 8, 16, 
the New King James Version and the NASB translate that verse as, he will take your finest young men and your donkeys. The NRSV and the NIV translate it as, he will take the best of your cattle and donkeys. Samuel is telling the Israelites here the consequences of them appointing a king over themselves. Big difference between a king taking your finest young men and him taking your cattle. Absolutely. And let's do one more. First Corinthians 7.36, the New Living Translation says, but if a man thinks he's treating his fiance improperly, the King James Version says, but if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely towards his virgin. And the Message Bible says, if a man has a woman friend to whom he's loyal, but never intended to marry, having decided to serve God as single. So how can we know which is the correct translation? Well, before we jump too far ahead, let's get a little foundation. For this episode, we're just going to concentrate on English translations. In 1526, one of the reformers, William Tyndale, using the original Hebrew and Greek texts of scripture, was the first to translate the Bible into English. William Tyndale was a brilliant man. He could speak seven languages, including being proficient in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest, and he could have gone far in the Catholic Church, except for his one flaw. He had a passion to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. Like Martin Luther, he saw the false teaching of the Catholic Church and the major errors in interpretation in the Vulgate, and he wanted people to know the truth. In fact, he was inspired by Martin Luther's translating the Bible into German to do the same for English-speaking people. Right. For his efforts in 1536, Tyndale was labeled a heretic. He was stripped of his priesthood, and he was ultimately killed. I'm going to quote his biography about how he died. He was bound to the beam and both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck. Gunpowder was added to the brush and logs. At the signal of a local official, the executioner standing behind Tyndale quickly tightened the noose, strangling him. Then an official took up a lit torch and handed it to the executioner who set the wood ablaze. But William Tyndale did not die in vain by any means. And I'm gonna quote his biography again. His translation, it would turn out, became decisive in the history of the English Bible and of the English language. Nearly a century later, when the translators of the authorized or King James Version debated how to translate the original languages, eight out of 10 times, they agreed that Tyndale had it best to begin with. So if Tyndale had it right, why do the King James Version at all? Good question. Well, because in 1604, King James I of England authorized that a new translation of the Bible into English be started, and he was king. So they did what he said. This new translation was finished in 1611, 85 years after Tyndale's Bible. The authorized version or King James Version quickly became the standard for English-speaking Protestants because of its flowing and poetic language. So why not just stop there? Well, the King James was found to have some flaws in how some things were translated. This is especially true after finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also some of the language in it was becoming obsolete and hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Since the issuance of the King James Version, translations have regularly been released as people get a better handle on the original meaning of the Hebrew and Greek text. This process is called textual criticism. 
Textual criticism is the exacting science of comparing and evaluating the variant readings found in the ancient documents of scripture. As any of us who've studied a foreign language know, no language translates perfectly into another. Their sentence structure is different, word meanings are different, grammar is different. Therefore, you just can't take a sentence in Hebrew and translate it word for word into English. That's what makes translating the Bible so difficult. Yeah. However, we need to note that by God's sovereignty, the vast majority of translations are unified in the essentials. There are a few heretical translations out there, but the vast majority are unified on the big stuff. Again, by God's sovereignty, reading one translation over another isn't going to put someone's salvation in jeopardy. The discrepancies are not as significant as the ones found in the Vulgate. Although a few pretty heretical versions yeah. have recently come out, and we're going to talk about more of those later. Right. When there's differences... Textual critics examine the evidence and decide which of the variants is most likely to preserve the meaning of the words of the original biblical author. This is harder than you might think because translators have a tough job. First, they have to make sure that the text is copied accurately from the original manuscripts. Some of the errors found in the King James Version, for example, were because it was miscopied from the original Hebrew. Yeah, then there's the problem of linguistics. We can see an example of this in 1 Corinthians 16, 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's the ESV version. The translators have to look at cultures and linguistics properly to try to translate this. Is this a literal kiss or slang for how someone in the culture greeted each other? One version, the easy to read version, had translated this verse Give each other the special greeting of God's people. Now, we don't know what that is. Maybe no. it's a high five. I don't know. But another version, the Message Bible says, pass the greetings around with holy hugs. So, I don't know what a holy hug is. I don't know either. There's a process that translators are to follow for interpretation. And some follow and apply this process better than others. The first is a word you've heard us use before, and that's exegesis. Exegesis is the close, careful, analytical study of a passage of scripture to understand its meaning. And the principle of exegesis is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the process of interpretation. It's used to recognize the original intent of the author. The translator has to contextualize the passage. The passage cannot mean what it was never meant to mean, and it must line up with other scripture. So if translating the Bible is so hard, why are there so many translations? Well, some new translations come out because, like we said, a group believes they have a better understanding of the original meaning of the Hebrew and Greek text. Some translations are created to play to a specific audience. Also, there's some translations that focus on being a more of a word-for-word -word translation, and that's called a formal equivalency translation, while others try to convey an idea more of a thought-by-thought, meaning-by-meaning, and that's called a dynamic equivalency translation. And even within the formal and dynamic equivalency translations, there's a wide variance. Maybe it would help Rose to name some of the more popular translations, their purpose, and their target audience. Like, I'll start with the ESV, since that is the one that we use, and many Reformed churches do too. The ESV, or English Standard Version, is a formal equivalency translation. It's a literal translation. It is firmly rooted in the Tyndale and King James translations, but without the archaic language. 
The ESV is closely related to the RSV or Revised Standard Version. It was published at the beginning of the 21st century, and it's well-suited for public reading and memorization. One of our other favorites is the NIV, the New International Version. And let's clarify that we mean the 1984 NIV translation, not the 2011 translation. The 1984 NIV translation was the most widely used version of any Bible translation. And they had to screw it up. And they screwed it up. perfectly balanced the word-for-word translation and the meaning-for-meaning translation. It was straightforward, easy to read, and it was suitable for a wide range of purposes. In 2011, though, they changed the NIV to make it gender-inclusive. An example is the 1984 NIV reads Mark 117 as, I will make you become fishers of men. The 2011 NIV now reads, I will send you out to fish for people. That just kills me sometimes when I think of that. There's the NKJV or New King James Version. The NKJV was published in 1982. It's basically a modernization of the original King James Version. It replaces some of the archaic language, but preserves the original purity and flowing language of the 1611 version. And another version we sometimes like to read is the NLT, New Living Translation. The NLT was translated from the ancient text by 90 leading Bible scholars. It strives to use clear and natural English, and it tries to make the implicit explicit. For example, in Romans 3.15, the ESV says their feet are swift to shed blood. The NLT says they rush to commit murder. The motto of the NLT translators is the truth made clear. I like that. I like that version. Yeah. And then there's the NASB or New American Standard Bible. The NASB is a literal translation from the original text. Since it's an accurate rendering of the source text, it makes an excellent study Bible. Another unique feature of the NASB is that it capitalizes all the pronouns related to God. And the other versions do not do that. Yeah, and I never know why. I know. I don't either. Then there's the Amplified Bible. The goal of the Amplified Bible is to take both word meaning and context into account to accurately translate the original text from one language into another. The Amplified does this through the use of explanatory alternate readings and amplifications to assist the reader in understanding what scripture really says. And I know you like this I do, version. yeah. If you've ever read the Amplified version, you'll notice immediately that it's very wordy. And that's because multiple English word equivalents to each key Hebrew and Greek word are given to clarify and amplify meanings that they may otherwise have been concealed by the traditional translation method. The first edition was published in 1965, but it's actually been updated in 2015 to make it a little bit easier to read. Yeah, I like a mix of a lot of the ones we've mentioned, and I know you probably do too. Yes. So let's do a couple modern translations. First, the Message Bible. The Message Bible is a paraphrased Bible. It should never be your sole source of scripture. It was meant to put scripture into easy-to-read modern language that almost anyone can understand. Paraphrased Bibles may be a nice extra Bible to have just to see how someone else would word a passage, but there's a danger in them. For example, in the ESV, Romans 3, 11, and 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
And the Message Bible paraphrases those verses as, there's nobody living right, not even one, nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. Nobody knows the score. <laughs> okay. It really waters it down. It does. You know, it really waters down Paul's original words. And as we said earlier, translators are supposed to make sure they don't make the text say something it was never meant to say. This is a huge danger with paraphrase Bibles. Another paraphrase Bible that is hugely popular, and I would warn anybody against this Bible. I would throw it out if I knew you had it. The Passion Translation. The Passion Translation translates the Romans 3, 11 to 12 verses as, there is no one who always does what is right. No, not even one. There is no one with the true spiritual insight, and there's no one who seeks after God alone. The problem with the Passion Translation is that it's not really a translation. Translations attempt to convey as accurately as possible the thought of the original author, whether they lean toward the word-for-word formal equivalency or thought-for-thought dynamic equivalency. But the Passion Translation inserts all kinds of concepts, all kinds of words and ideas of which the original text gives no hint whatsoever, despite the occasional footnotes, which say, implied by the context. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. And since this is such a popular version, mm. we'll give another example of how the Passion Translation inserts things that were never part of the original text. Philippians 1-2 in the ESV says, and this is Paul speaking, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passion Translation says that same verse, May the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful Father, and our Messiah, the Lord Jesus, be upon your lives. You know, Chris, you hate to pull the Revelation 22 card, which is, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. But I think it's completely appropriate to pull it here. It definitely is because they've added a lot of stuff that's not there. And I think people like it because it kind of sounds flowery and sweet. Throw it out. <laughs> okay. But how do you really feel? Throw it out. <laughs> okay. So now that we've probably really confused the heck out of everyone except throw out the passion translation if you have it, <laughs> let's give some solid advice. First, find an accurate, reliable translation and stick to that translation for your daily reading. If you prefer the formal equivalency translations, we recommend the ESV or the NLT. If you prefer dynamic equivalency, the 1984 NIV version is the best, but even the 2011 version is better than most other versions in this category. Rose, you and I do our daily reading out of a 2011 NIV because that's what our chronological Bible is, and it's been fine. Right. But... After you have a main translation for daily reading, consider using other translations to study from and cross-reference. The NASB is the best translation for study, but don't be afraid to look up other translations, even paraphrase translations, to get more a more extended view of the passage. But not the passion. But not the passion <laughs> translation. Throw it out. If you don't want to own a lot of translations, you can always go on Bible Gateway. Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible. They have many translations available and you can click back and forth between them. I mean, it's real. They've simplified it for they us. Have. They have. I love technology. And we do that all the time. We look yeah. up multiple translations. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but even within translations, there's variations. 
There's study Bibles with different themes. Choose what interests you, but just make sure if you're using a study Bible, it's credible. I use the ESV Systematic Theology Study Bible. Biggest drawback of this is the print is so daggone small, but other than that, I love it. Its theme is to show the Bible as one whole consistent theological truth. It has cross-reference scriptures, study notes, introductions to each book of the Bible. It's great. And there's a lot of great study Bibles out there. Yeah, I use the regular ESV study Bible and it has all those same things in it, basically. A lot of really good study notes. And like I said, I had to buy those uh, magnifying things that older people <laughs> than me usually buy, but I had you for the study well, notes at least. far behind. <laughs> anyway, I like it. So, but like we said, make sure the person or the group who made the study Bible is credible. Joyce Meyer used the Amplified Translation and then made a study Bible with study notes. Do not use this Bible. Joyce Myers is a false teacher who spouts constant heresies. So the last thing you would want is her giving you insights into scripture through the study notes. The same with Tony Evans, and there are others. Best advice we can give is do your homework. And if you have these, you don't have to throw them out because the translation's still okay. Just ignore the study notes. Right. Get a black Sharpie. And <laughs> yeah, good idea. Like we said, while there's some bad translations, there's some even worse study Bibles. And rather than solely rely on notes at the bottom of the page of your Bible, do a little research. Even with a great study Bible, we still do a lot of research. Yeah. Look up commentaries on the passage that you're reading. Again, commentaries by solid biblical teachers. Go to Blue Letter Bible or some of the other sites we named. Put your passage in and you'll not only get commentaries, you can see the original Hebrew and Greek, see its meaning, and see where else in the Bible it's used. It's uh, really cool and a lot easier than the former people had. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it, we have so many resources at our fingertips. So we know it sounds like a lot of work, and it is. But the rewards and the blessings that you get out of really digging into and reading and understanding your Bible will be a lifelong blessing. Once you start, you'll probably find yourself hungry to keep digging it. Amen. And that's all we have time for today. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com or message us through Facebook or Instagram. And you can always leave a comment in the comment section of whatever you're listening from. Have a blessed day, everybody. Mm -hmm.